0: find our text, beloved, in the chapter which we read, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, the verses 21 and 22, where we read God's word as follows. And you, that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight thus far. In both the remote and immediate context of my test. Our Lord, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ is introduced. The main theme of this epistle is the glory of Jesus Christ. He is introduced in the remote context as the image of the invisible God. As God's dear Son. By whom and for whom all things were created. God hath glorified him. In the immediate context he is introduced as as the head of the church which is his body. And it is revealed to us that it is the the good pleasure of Jehovah that in that Christ all the fullness of God should dwell. He must have among all creatures, the preeminence. And it is also God's good pleasure to reconcile in and through that glorified Christ all things in heaven and on earth. That reconciliation is not a thing of the future. Uh, That is a thing of the past. That is an accomplished fact. God hath reconciled us. And he hath reconciled us, the church, through the body of the flesh of Christ That is the second element in my text. And in the third place, the end, the purpose, is stated. In fact, that is the only purpose of creation and recreation and history. The only purpose for the whole world, heaven and earth, And the purpose is that God be glorified in his church. The church must come to stand before his face as a monument of the marvelous and glorious work that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore we read, the third element in my text, that we should be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight as the bride without spot and wrinkle to be exhibited to all the devils in the whole world and not one spot or wrinkle will be on her and God will be glorified in his marvelous work. I like to call your attention to the reconciliation of the church. In the first place, the fact of it. In the second place, the method. And in the third place, the end. He has reconciled us. Us. But may be well to see once who we are. The Holy Ghost gives two characteristics of us who we are outside of God and his wonderful work. It is humbling but it is salutary to be reminded of that. The text says that we were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works let us look at that for a minute alienated I think is a legal idea alienated from God as far as God and his Christ and his kingdom is concerned we are out outside of God's communion. We cannot stand in God's communion and in his fellowship and within the circle of his friendship. We may not live in that sphere as we are by nature. Even the elect all God's elect people, whom He loved from before the foundation of the world by nature, are aliens, strangers to God. We could not possibly have communion or friendship with God. And Besides that, we were enemies. By having our mind occupied with wicked works, there you have a short catalog of us as we are by nature, apart from the grace of God. Then we have our mind and our heart Always in wicked works. That is not only true of murderers and adulterers and thieves. The open sinners. That is true of your next door neighbor with his sweet smile on his face. And his kindly greeting. The man that brings his pay envelope home and feeds his children right, pays his taxes. In short, that includes all these so-called noble and upright citizens. Your college professors, your businessmen, your laborers, the men that never see a jail or a courthouse. Every man is alien Alien as far as God is concerned. Outside of his communion. Cannot stand in his communion. And subjectively he is an enemy of God. He hates God. From the cradle to the grave. The Holy Spirit who cannot lie. Gives us these two characteristics. And now. Now over against that terrible position. He reconciled us, says the text. Now, first of all, note that he, the living God, reconciled us. God is not reconciled. Neither are both reconciled. But we are reconciled. God needs not to be reconciled. Because God loves us from all eternity. He has never ceased loving us. Even when we were sinners. In the second place, this reconciliation is a complete reconciliation. A very strong word is used here. You might translate it. He has reconciled us completely. Nothing is left of that glorious work of reconciliation. It is absolutely complete. In the third place, this reconciliation by which God has reconciled us to himself... Includes, first of all, objectively, that he has made us the proper objects of his fellowship and communion. In other words, he has taken out of the way the that which hindered us, the obstacles, in the way of fellowship with God. We'll come back to that later. Objectively, the Lord took away the obstacles that hindered us from having communion with God and living in his fellowship and friendship. And in the second place it contains reconciliation uh, that he made us the proper subjects of that fellowship. He removed our enmity from our mind and heart and soul, so that we would be able to love him, fear him, and serve him. And therefore, God hath reconciled us. In the second place, i like to pause a while with that method, the how of that reconciliation. And in order to see the how, the method of God's reconciliation, we have to see, first of all, what was required in order to reconcile the people of God to himself. I spoke of the obstacle. And the obstacle is sin. Sin incurs guilt. And guilt is liability to punishment. And as long as our sin stands between us In God, there is no possibility that we can be reconciled to God, that we can walk with Him and have communion with Him. You know, there are many misconceptions about that very matter. You hear hymns you hear the singing of songs like that Jesus loves the sinners that Jesus draws the sinners and has communion with sinners we must never put the period there because that is not true in itself it is not true God can have no communion with a sinner. The righteous God cannot deny himself. And therefore, he cannot have communion with any sinner. When there is sin between a creature and God, then God is far, very far away from him. If God would have communion with a sinner, he would deny himself. And the righteous God cannot and will not deny himself. And therefore, the sin... The guilt must be removed. I said a while ago, sin incurs guilt. And guilt is liability to punishment. And the punishment is eternal death. And there is no exception. God never makes an exception. The soul that sinneth It shall die is a law of God and there are no exceptions. The penalty for sin must be paid in all cases. And the penalty is death eternal, everlasting damnation. And it must be paid God's justice and God's righteousness and holiness and truth, you may say in short, the living God must be satisfied. Sin is the outraging of the living God. And he demands satisfaction. And there is no exception. The least little sin must be paid for with eternal damnation. Only when God's justice and righteousness, His glorious virtues that were outraged are satisfied, only then can there be atonement. And even then, we do not say enough. When we say that the payment must be made, the sinner must suffer eternal death. Even then, we do not say enough. The devil suffer eternal death, and the reprobate suffer eternal eternal death. They pay and pay and pay unto all eternity, and yet they never atone. They are never reconciled, even though they pay eternally. If we are to be reconciled to God, then the payment of eternal death must be made from the motive of purest love. We must love to go to hell. We must love to pay the price of eternal death and damnation if we are to be reconciled to God and to atone. That must be added. That is very fundamental. God requires payment to be made to him from the motive of love. We must, we must love to set everything straight again and pay from that motive. And now the text tells us that he did it. Christ did Christ removed the obstacle that stands between the church and the living God which makes it impossible for us to have communion with him which makes us aliens he the Lord Jesus Christ removed the guilt And by removing the guilt, even the guilt of every child of God that has lived, lives, and will live. And thus, by paying the guilt and removing the guilt, he has removed the alienation from God. It's gone. We are no longer aliens. Because of the, that, that work of reconciliation. Which Christ brought. Jesus Christ. The son of God. God out of God. Remove the obstacles. He came upon earth, and he drew upon him all our sin. He was made sin for us in the form of guilt, of course. He remained a holy one throughout. But he drew all the guilt of our sin from Adam to the last soul of God's people that shall be born in the end of time and pay the price. He went to hell. In fact, his whole life was hell for him. From the beginning of his incarnation to the end of his life, even though it was in an increasing measure He paid and paid and paid and suffered hell on earth. And he did it because he loved God. Not for one moment did Jesus ever hesitate or rebel because of that terrible Via Dolorosa the way of suffering he the Lord Jesus Christ removed all the guilt from his people by paying the price to God from the motive of purest love he the obedient son whose whole life existed in doing the will of God, even in hell, he removed the obstacle that alienated the church from God and prohibited any communion with God or fellowship and friendship the question arises how is that possible? The answer is a mystery although we can know a bit of it. He Jesus Christ is the Son of God You know, that makes the gospel so attractive to me that it is God himself who reconciled us. It makes it so attractive to me. Imagine, here is God and there are his undeserving people. There's two things between them. There's God's own righteousness and justice and holiness that forbids him, that forbids the living God to take his people to his his bosom. And there is their enmity. They hate him. Every one of God's people by nature Hates him. Isaiah says that every one of us chose his own way. And experience proves that your own heart and your own mind will tell you that you will have none of him. According to the flesh, our carnal life is is enmity against God. That's true of every elect, every child of God. Here is God. His righteousness forbids him to embrace his people. And there is our enmity. And now the living God himself, God out of God, takes his people and becomes one with his people. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. God himself. In our flesh, God taking his people, the very core and center of his people, he takes upon himself in the womb of Mary. So that he represents... He represents all the elect with all their enmity and all their guilt and all their sin upon his neck. God in our flesh in the state of guilt. And then he stands he stands under his own wrath. God stands under his own wrath and proceeds to annihilate All the wrath of God that otherwise would have come down upon us in hell unto all eternity. That makes the gospel so attractive to me. All these things are out of God. That is the gospel. But notice that the text says he did it in the body of his flesh. the divine nature, God the Son, His divinity, could not suffer, could not die. Neither had sinned. We sinned. But nevertheless, He, the person, the personal Godhead, went to hell when through death, death eternal. You may say the Son of God went through death in the body of our flesh. And just because He is the personal Son of God, Therefore, he could suffer death like no other man. That makes his death so meritorious, so beautiful. His death was an act of love. It was loving kindness. It was pure love for Jesus to lay down his life. For his people and in the second place he could love God like no man could that makes his death so meritorious and all that merit of the Son of God in his act of dying willingly is given reconciled unto the church and so he Jesus Christ is our reconciliation centrally centrally Christ Jesus in his act of dying the death eternal is the reconciliation of the church 2,000 years ago you that sit before me were reconciled to God it's accomplished it's done 2,000 years ago on Golgotha he removed the obstacle that prohibits you from living in God's communion it's all done that's also meant when he said it is finished all finished his death on the cross gives you the right now to have communion with God and to enter into his fellowship his death his loving death gives you the right to go boldly to the throne of grace and to say, my father in heaven, I love thee and I crave thy communion. It's an accomplished fact. Nay more. Two thousand years ago, on the cross of Golgotha, He laid the basis for your reconciliation subjectively. What is that nonsense that man can do anything toward his salvation, toward communion with God? What nonsense is that in the face of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? There was no man. There was no man at all. Among all the millions of the elect of God. That ever could. Will to reconcile himself to God. All that. We could do. Is to make the obstacle greater and greater and greater by our enmity. That's all. What is that for kind of nonsense that we are to fulfill all kinds of conditions? What nonsense is that? You remember our recent struggle? What nonsense is that in the light of a text like this, Be reconciled <clears throat> What nonsense in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ and his labor, the labor of his soul, his crying from the bottom of hell. What nonsense to talk about fulfilling conditions or to talk about prerequisites. What nonsense, beloved. Don't ever be ensnared by it. I know it is pleasing to our pride to the pride of life. But remember, the, the act of reconciliation is divine. It is never human. Not in part. No matter how small. Nothing. His cross is objectively our reconciliation. But that object of reconciliation, the removing of the obstacle between us and God and making the way even, is the basis for the subject of reconciliation, for the removal of your enmity. You don't do that either. You don't remove the enmity out of your heart. You never do. The removal of the enmity out of your heart is also his work. Is also the work of God through Christ. Both by his word and spirit. There is none of it, none of it that you or I do even in sanctification if you please sanctification is divine oh it is beautifully divine from the beginning to the end he does all the reconciling from the very foundation to the very crown the temple of God is built by triune God and not by you or by me or by Moses or Paul for that matter. He removed the legal obstacle. He removed the subjective obstacle throughout and absolutely alone All the work of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That becomes plain and plainer. When we come to the third thought, the end of it. What end has God in view? He reconciled us. We know what it is. He reconciled us through Jesus Christ, the body of his flesh. Now, what is his end that he has in view? The text says, so that he might place us in his sight before him, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. That's the object that God has in view with you, the church. And I assure you, he is going to attain that object too, perfectly. Every last one of the millions and millions of elect finally will stand before his face to be inspected by the devils in the world and the angels without a spot without any charge against them. He'll take care of that. He does. He always did. You know and I know what kind of a mess we make of it. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We can't do a thing Without me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. It's all divine work. Let us, let us see. Holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. God is going to keep on working with us until we are holy. What does that mean? Holiness, beloved, is God Himself. Holiness means, first of all, that he hates sin. He is far, far removed from sin. God has a horror of all that is black, filthy, corrupt. I can feel it in my heart because I have him in my heart. I know how God feels. He has revealed it in the Bible, and He tells me in my heart: the flavor of an holy God is in my soul. He is He hates and abhors the what we call the least little sin? He is far removed from it. That is negative holiness. And positive, positive holiness is that. The Lord loves himself. He is attracted to himself. He is dedicated to himself, consecrated to himself. He does everything to his own glory, to the enhancing of his beauty. That is holiness, positively. And it is his purpose that you will be true children of God so that you will look like God in a creaturely sense of course but you will look like God the whole church will be be like God God God-like in beauty in holiness he begins with that work today Have you never experienced, for instance, a wicked thought comes up in your heart? You shiver in yourself. That's holiness. You have in your heart a horror of wickedness, especially your own, so that you like to run away from yourself. That's holiness. God is busy to do, to, to perform my text in the hearts of God's people. He does that. We don't. He does. When we, when we have a horror of sin and teach our children to have a horror of sin, that is a divine work in us and through us. Of course. And positively, when you are attracted to the church, How we love to go to church. How we love to sit down and listen to a sermon. How we love to open our psalter and sing the songs of Zion. How we love to shake hands with the brother and the sister. How we love to open the Bible. And how we love to talk together about God. We love that. How we love the church. And the cause of Jesus Christ. Why I assure you. For the sake of all those things. We gladly go on the stake. We'll do it again. I know we will. That's positive holiness. To be attracted. To all that is really good. Divine. Grace like. To be dedicated. To be sold. To goodness. To be sold to real spiritual beauty. To be sold to the cause of God and His Christ. That is holiness. Oh God, God does that. That's why we are here tonight. That's why I stand here preaching. That's a divine miracle. A miracle of grace. That's the end He has in view with you and with me. He also wants you to be unblameable. That is an ethical conception. Every sin, you know, every thought that is filthy and wicked and corrupt and evil puts a blot on you, puts a blot on your soul and sometimes on your body or both. That's a blame. An ethical blame comes on you. They are blots and spots that has to be washed, washed away by the spirit of grace, by the marvel of sanctification. The Lord has to cure us of our spiritual diseases and evils. And he does. Watch the saint as he lies on his knees. I assure you, crying out his heart to God, Oh God, I am sorry, sorry for my spots, for the black spots in my life. That's my text. It is the end that God has in view to make you unblameable, and I assure you He'll make a perfect job of it. When you have washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb. All the spots will remain behind. When the final work of sanctification is over and you arrive with Him, you'll be beautiful. And you'll be unblameable. No one will blame you anymore. And He wants to make you unreprovable. I think that's a legal idea. There must be no charge against you. He'll take care of it. I know it now by faith. That is sometimes, not always. I cannot always lay hold of it. But sometimes when my faith is strong, then I begin hesitantly and sometimes tremblingly then I begin to saw, to, then I begin to sing the song of Paul when he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. When my faith is strong, then I believe that all the charges against me are removed and that all three are in connection with that reconciliation of Jesus Christ. God works it out in the church. Of course we are admonished. Of course we are called. That is part of the labor of God. So is the answer in your heart. When he says, seek my face, then my heart says, I seek thy face, O Lord. That's all from beginning to end. His work. And the end, oh, and the end, beloved, is going to be beautiful. Then the reconciliation which is Christ, shall have been fulfilled. Then you will see, and I will see, in a new heaven and a new earth, a new city, And in that city, a new people with new hearts and new minds, new souls and new bodies, entirely holy, completely unblameable and absolutely unreprovable in the sight of God. And then we will begin to be merry, happy in God, for so great salvation. Amen. We thank thee, our Father, which art in heaven, that thou hast given us thy word, the word of reconciliation, wrought in Jesus Christ, fulfilled in thy people. The beginning of that fulfillment is given to us. And it shall continue according to thy promises until we shall stand before thee beautiful, completely redeemed, and beautified with salvation. Lord, bless thy word unto thy flock. Pardon our sins in that precious blood of our Redeemer. And go with us into the night and bring us to everlasting joy, unto thy praises forever. Amen. Our closing number is 259. Sing to the Lord, sing his praise, all ye people. New be your song as new honors be paid. Sing of his majesty. Bless him forever. Show his salvation from day to day. Let us sing the first, fifth, and sixth, omitting two, three, and four. One, five, and six of 259. And keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. Amen.